This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a 7-day money-back guarantee. So go check them out at linode.com slash myrubystory. Hey everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Adam Cuppy. Adam, you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Now, I don't recall you being on Ruby Rogues. I should probably go look that up. But uh, anyway, do you want to just give people a brief introduction? Let them know who you are, what you do, who you work for, anything like that that you think people might be interested in? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Adam Cuppy. I've been in the uh, Ruby community for right around 10 years or so. I originally started as an actor. I went to school for theater, uh, specifically theater performance in Oregon. And then after discovering that I really loved the art form, but I wasn't the biggest fan of the profession, I went into creative strategy and later into tech. And today I work for Zeal, uh, which I co-founded with a couple of cohorts of mine. And we're a consultancy that specializes in web and mobile applications. And now we're moving farther and farther into augmented reality and what we can do for our clients and other innovators to help kind of bridge the gap between where they were and where they want to be. Awesome. Now, uh, I have a series of questions that I usually ask as part of this interview. I sent them to you beforehand. Um, so yeah. I'm just going to dive right in. We're going to get your story. One thing that I will point out as, as we go is that a lot of times these stories are, you know, kind of funny, kind of interesting, but there are also usually things that people in, the, in similar positions can learn from. So, you know, feel free to call those out and let us know, hey, you know, I went through this. And yeah, if you find yourself in this situation, this is a good option or solution. Sound good? Absolutely. Sounds great. Let's do this. All right. So the first question is, how did you get into programming? Well, like I was saying, so I originally started as an actor. Um, mm-hmm. Since I was in high school, I wanted to be a performer. I wanted to, you know, of course, be on Broadway. You know, I, I sort of wanted more theater than I ever did film. But I really enjoyed uh, entertaining people. And um, I felt like, I mean, that's what made my heart sing, as my mother-in-law often says. So uh, I did that for a while, and I went and worked for a large theater company that had a big budget, 30-ish million, $40 million budget, which for most arts organizations, but definitely for theaters, that's a lot of money. Uh-huh. Uh, and I found out quickly that, uh, that the profession of acting was just not as certain as I wanted it to be. Uh, and more specifically, it, you know, I met a lot of actors that every year they were looking for their next gig um, and had been doing it for 20, 30 years of their life. And I knew that I wanted a family. I knew I wanted to get married and settle somewhere. And the the risk of uh, not ending up in the place with all that kind of certainty and security just was not something that I totally loved. Well, at the same time as I absolutely adored the art form itself, theater. Mm-hmm. So uh, I decided to make the transition into uh, marketing, which I don't know made a lot of sense to me. It was 
you know, uh, <laughs> where acting is about standing in the shoes of somebody else and trying to empathize and be another character. Marketing is very, very similar, right? I mean, you're okay. trying to think about your customer and or who the audience, the buyer might be. And so uh, I always had an aptitude towards, you know, u- utilizing computers. And so it just made a lot of sense for me to go into graphic design. I worked for a, a decent sized company, about a, about 200, 300 million dollars now a year. And it was a coffee company that was up in the Northwest uh, called Dutch Bros Coffee. And I was their creative director for a while. I had a really, really good time. But I always had this draw back to software development. And specifically, a few years prior, I was working for this resort and they wanted to put a contact form on their website. Mm-hmm. You know, beforehand, they had just like a phone number. Uh, and they wanted to put like a contact form, you know, name, email address, you know, what's your question, comment, whatever. Right. And so I decided I was like, I'm going to figure this thing out. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> absolutely no <laughs> idea how to do it. You know, right. I had this very loose understanding of HTML, had almost no understanding of JavaScript. And I barely, I'd heard of the acronym PHP. But other than that, I knew nothing. And so I just went online, you know, did some searches in Google. This would be early 2000s. And I uh, found this snippet of code uh, that I copy and pasted. I FTP'd it up to the server. I went to the page, which loaded. I filled out the form. I hit submit, and the dang thing worked. And I that was the moment in which I was like, I am so blown away <laughs> by what I was able to achieve. Like just the act of being able to take somebody's input from their name, email address, whatever, mm-hmm. and turn it into something like an email just blew my mind. So when I was in marketing and creative direction, I always had this inkling to go back to that. And so um, I had started my own company and we started, we went into website design and started working with PHP and slowly but surely like uh, got really, that really became a big part of my life. And then I discovered the 30 minute or what 15 minute blog tutorial right. for Rails. And, whoops. Uh, whoops. whoops. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it just blew my mind. I was like, Wait, what? And so I dove into that and uh, was addicted ever since, got hooked. And so now, here we are. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting. I mean, people from all walks of life um, wind up in programming. And it's funny because a lot of people I talk to, they're like, well, you know, I have a degree in, you know, take your pick, right? You know, not technical at all. And I just don't know if I'm qualified to be a programmer. Guess what? <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, the qualifications, it's, you know, I've, I've come to and subscribe to the idea that, you know, software development is more trade skill than anything, that it's something that, you know, can be learned mm-hmm. just like any other skill that, you know, you don't have to have, you don't have to have any type of, you know, personality or traits or qualifications to ultimately be good at it and, and build things that are exciting and fun for you or, you know, whoever you might be working for. So yeah, you can come from anywhere. And in fact, I found, cause I get asked a lot, like, you know, do you put your theater degree to work? Cause that's what my degree, I actually mm-hmm. do have a BFA in theater. And, uh, and the answer is absolutely. I don't necessarily use it to get on stage, but I absolutely use it, um, to help, you know, I use the, the skills I learned there to create better interactions and relationships with people. And, right. you know, I'm now more comfortable speaking in front of people on stage or as far as, you know, maybe speaking engagements and so forth. Um, and also just have a better understanding for how other people might think about something, even if I don't, you know, if, even if I can't experience it myself, I can at least have an empathy towards it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So you're doing PHP, 
life's good. You're writing code for the web. How did you find Ruby? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I had, I had started building a, a PHP framework that, uh, you know, I had no idea what MPC was, but it basically uh-huh. it was following that pattern. I had no idea. And, uh, my now business partner, you know, he said, Hey, so there's this thing, this blog, 15 minute blog tutorial. You got to check this thing out. It's called Ruby on rails. Uh, you're going to be pretty blown away by it. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I went to rubyonrails.org or whatever it was. I think, uh-huh. I, yeah, rubyonrails.org. Yep. The tutorial was there and I was like, oh my gosh, like this thing is doing everything that I was trying to build without knowing it. Um, and the language, the Ruby language was really elegant. It was simple. It didn't have all that weird syntax you had to deal with. Uh, they made it seem and appear so easy that I just, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is the ability to build something amazing in such a short period of time was so exciting because at the end of the day, you know, like again, coming from a theater background is, you know, you rehearse, you, uh, you know, you do all your rehearsals, you do all your build and your, your build work ultimately get to the performance. And so, you know, similarly, you know, we write, or I write all of this code to ultimately get to an outcome of creating something that someone else can experience. Right. And so the, the faster I can get there, the more exciting it gets for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love the act of creation, but ultimately I'm very bound to that outcome that, you know, I want it to be able to be seen by the world. I want it to be able to be experienced by someone else. And so the idea of getting there more quickly using Rails was has always been a very exciting thing for me. And I, and I find that I gravitate towards that in other languages as well, that, you know, the more quickly I can create something exciting, uh, the more quickly I can get it out to the world, the more fulfilling it becomes for myself. I, I completely identify with that. And the thing that gets me with a lot of this stuff is... Um, so, for example, I can't tell you how many Angular tutorials I've gone through, right? <laughs> right. And, and it's cool technology, and it's exciting. But uh, the thing that really tipped things over the edge for me is I found a walkthrough for Angular material. And so I started building something and seeing something and having a solution in front of me, right? And, and that's what paid it off. And um, it was the same thing with Rails, right? I had a problem. Uh, the company I was working for was using Rails, and we had a solution up in like a day and a half. And, yeah. you know, it, it, I mean, it wasn't elegant and, and it didn't always <laughs> right. work, but, you know, it was there and it did the job most of the time. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I totally get it. It's like, it's like, you know what? I, I don't really care about the deep computer science end of things. And I took plenty of computer science classes in college. I have a computer engineering degree. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, all the algorithms training and, you know, the, the discipline training and thinking that I got, I just want to build crap. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. I think that that resonates for most people. Um, yeah. I think especially for software engineers and developers and those who even get into the industry, they're really excited by the idea of being able to create something mm-hmm. that can help and serve someone or something else. Uh, and I think sometimes, if not uh, oftentimes, it starts with wanting to serve ourselves. You know, there's a lot of talk about various needs that we have in our life. And one of those that's really strong for me and I think strong for maybe you and for many other people, which is growth as well as contribution mm-hmm. and the ability to grow personally and feel like you're evolving as a human being and that you have some control over that is a huge driver for a lot of people. And I think a lot of software engineers feel that because there's an abstraction between the the syntax and the language itself is an abstraction between the ultimate outcome, which Mm -hmm. is that experience that the user is going to have. So there's this growing 
this growing that's required to be able to bridge that gap from what it is that you will to ultimately want to create and what you need to do to be able to create that thing. They're not, it's not a word document. It's not, you know, some fancy WYSIWYG. Like there's really core kind of in, intellectual, lo, you know, logic and reasoning that has to be able to happen for you to see how you go from point A to point B. Right. And the second half of that is contribution and the feeling that I am giving something back. I have a greater purpose. I'm serving something bigger than myself. And I, I've found that, uh, especially speaking at many other conferences and meeting a lot of people globally that are in this ecosystem, that those that are the most passionate, the most exciting are those that have a really deep sense of contribution. Um, like those that are contributing to the Rails framework or many other open source projects. Like, you know, they get paid almost nothing. Even those that are working for companies that are effectively paying their salaries or their time to be working on open source, they would be doing it anyway. It's just right. kind of, it's like they, they've gotten lucky in the sense that they've been able to find a way to do that more full time and get paid personally to be able to do it. Um, but having that sense of deep contribution, I think, is at some level, you know, ubiquitous across the software development industry. And I found that very much so, especially in the Ruby community as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you hit that nail right on the head. It's funny because I've talked to some companies and they're like, we just can't seem to hold on to developers. And it's usually because they're missing one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't provide a greater and deeper sense of purpose to the yeah. work. It's just about writing code and, you know, checking the boxes. Yep, that or they're missing the growth opportunities. And it's just, right. you know what, I, I'm doing the same thing I was doing last year, and I'm kind of bored. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to get bored. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, if you don't have a greater purpose, and you don't have a feeling that you're going anywhere with it, you know, like, I think that a lot, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, fortunately, or unfortunately, you know, there's, there's a pretty deep association between, you know, uh, the drive to want to continually refactor code, and mm -hmm the need to fulfill that greater purpose and that ultimate outcome as far as the, the user or customer is concerned. Right. And what's interesting, and, and I've, I've been trying to put together more and more of thoughts around this because as a consultancy, what Zeal is, you know, we work on both sides of that equation where we're dealing with the product owners who are very, many of them are non-technical and they're mm -hmm. very driven to provide that experience to their customer. And then we're also dealing with the engineering teams who, while they might very, you know, very much appreciate, understand, and want for that ultimate outcome, their majority of their life is spent in the code itself. So they bind the sense of growth and contribution to the actual work. Um, and so trying to reconcile that between those two is really fascinating to me. And coming from um, more of a, a uh, an outcome-oriented industry like creative direction and acting and all that stuff, I have a deep appreciation to both sides of that and but reconciling that can be really really hard and i see that mostly when you look at engineering teams that all they want to do is upgrades all they want to do is refactors um and sometimes it's like and, and it can be really deflating when the product owner says i'm sorry but we just can't nicely or not nicely sorry we just can't invest in that right now mm -hmm. like we need to keep building features because our ultimate outcome is x and right. it does not involve necessarily this technological one uh so i it's a it's a tough thing. I get it, uh, but it's it's also a real thing <laughs> that you can't go unnoticed. And so I think finding a way for your technical and your product vision to to be able to align around a common purpose and be able to empower everybody in that manner is like should be kind of the ultimate goal. Is how can we achieve both of those outcomes and help everybody grow and help everybody contribute and uh, and fulfill an even deeper purpose as an organization? Yep, absolutely. 
So the next thing that I usually ask is somewhere along the lines of what have you contributed to the community? So what would people know you for or what do you what are you most proud of that you've done for the community? Yeah, uh, I guess maybe they're very similar. So uh, most people would know me as a speaker at Ruby conferences um, mm-hmm. and the co-founder of Zeal. Um, and, and mostly because I you know, speak at conferences and I wear the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's the, I mean, kind of makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I've not made a lot of open source contributions. While I, you know, deeply appreciate that there are many people that do, I just have generally not. Um, and I think it's because for me, uh, like, you know, based on my background, like I know that I can bring a lot to the table as when it comes as an energetic speaker, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not with the richest of content all the times, but as an energetic individual, like I can bring that to the table. Um, so I think that's what most people would know me for is those two things. Gotcha. What's your favorite talk that you've given? Oh man. Uh, without a doubt, my, my favorite talk is what if Shakespeare wrote Ruby? <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. And actually I'm going to be giving a talk here soon as well at, uh, well, I don't know when this comes out, but who cares? You guys are going to get early release information maybe. So I'm going to be speaking at RubyConf this year. And I'm going to be teaching improv. So the the talk is going to be about uh, the number one uh, rule of improv, which is yes and. That that once uh, once a storyline gets established in improv, you build off of it. You don't negate the story and change direction. So Mm -hmm. it's yes and. Well, uh, I found that that principle can apply through the rest of life as well. Is that if I, I have something written on my wall, you can't necessarily see it, but I have what I think of as like my seven kind of core principles as a business owner. And one of them is never redefine, iterate. So it's, it goes along the lines of the yes and principle of, uh, is that once it's done, once it's defined, let it be defined, but you can always reiterate on it, right? Or you can Mm -hmm. always iterate on it. Excuse me. So, right. So if you say, if you say, um, you know, I'm a mechanic, right? I don't say, no, you're not. You're a school bus driver. (laughs) I say, oh, you're a mechanic. But at some point in time, I can say, yeah, and I saw you driving a school bus recently, (laughs) right? And so we can iterate on this storyline. We can do that in our organizations. We can do that in our code. Um, And my philosophy on it is, you know, uh, as long as we're doing that, then we're always in a state of actually refactoring in its own way. Um, And we're not worrying about, you know, burning the bridge and, Uh you know, opening a new one. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, so what if Shakespeare, sorry, that was a tangent. Uh, so yeah, my favorite talk is what if Shakespeare <laughs> wrote Ruby? Uh, I had this, uh, again, it's the marriage between my two loves and passions. And so, uh, the talk is very interactive. I think I've given it half a dozen times at this point. And, uh, it, it's, it was very much meant to, uh, relate the patterns and practices that Shakespeare used hundreds of years ago, um, to avoid having to write in depth documentation or stage direction on its mm-hmm. language. So the core principle is that, you know, Shakespeare has about 850,000 words in his works. Um, yet there's almost no stage direction. 1700 new, new word forms were created, uh, phrases that had never been used in that context or ever even been said before. Yet somehow he was able to define those things, um, give them meaning and do it all within the text itself. And I found that so fascinating because as software engineers, we experienced something very similar where, mm-hmm. you know, we have these APIs we develop and over time they change and we have to communicate to new teams over time, maybe years later, what our intentions were then and what the functions and the the purpose of that code was. 
And so it really kind of got me thinking. I'm like, well, what was it that Shakespeare did and what what happens that the, the poets have done that kind of leave evidence and leave those indications of what something means? Um, and could we do that inside of our code, mm-hmm. you know, in an effective way without feeling that we have to write, you know, inline comments or huge de- in-depth documentation for somebody to even understand what's available to them? Right. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I've heard so many people say the ultimate documentation documentation is the code. And yeah, just that level of expressiveness, right? Where it's just the text and nothing else. Right, right, exactly. Very cool. So what are you working on now? Well, I'm prepping for some talks coming up. <laughs> That's for sure. Ruby Dev uh, Summit. Woo! I know. I'm super stoked, actually. I'm, <laughs> Me too. I'm, well, I'm really excited for this. I, I'm really, really excited by virtual conferences. I think it's just a really wise way to make it more accessible and attainable to people around the globe. Um, and so I'm very excited for that. So that, that's something I'm working on that's very exciting for me. Um, and then other than that, it's just continuing to iterate. So um, I'm looking at ways to simplify areas of my own life. Uh, and I'm reading a lot of books right now that are more on growth and personal development that orient around how to simplify my more, you know, my emotions around things um, so that I can more easily iterate on them, um, yet fulfill, feel fulfilled the whole time. I feel like to a large extent, that's a really easy trap to fall into, which mm-hmm. is just being very discontent. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I'm, I, I would say I'm working on that. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny cause, uh, you know, it sounds like you and I are kind of in a similar position in the sense that, you know, I work at home, I work for myself and, um, you know, I'm trying to build a business and do all the technical stuff that I have to do. And yeah, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, you know, I'm working on getting better at these things that I care about or that matter to me or, you know, things like that. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, I was turned on to a book that, um, I'd end up recommending to anybody and it's called ego is the enemy. Oh, so good. It's so good, right? It's so good. Ryan holiday. Yep. It's a really good book. Um, you know, originally when I was told, hey, you should read the book Ego is the Enemy, I was like, <laughs> what are you trying to say? Like, hey, let's just, you know. You're hurting uh, my ego you're, here. You're hurting, you're hurting <laughs> my ego. Don't you know how important I am? Uh, the, but what was, really, what was really cool about it um, was, was just simply the, the idea that, you know, that your ego can, can present itself in so many different ways and in mm-hmm. ways you might not even realize. And, um, and if you allow yourself to at least be cognizant of that kind of shadow that's cast on your own sense of self and that being the ego, then it can really allow you to open up to, you know, the truth that sits around you and the people around you and the world around you and can really shine some light on maybe a better approach to the things that you might be experiencing. And I feel like I think where it got really resonant for me was you know, a lot right now, there's a lot of people in a lot of anguish right now for, you know, many different reasons. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, whether you agree or disagree with it, but there's a lot of contention. And right. I feel like ego is driving a lot of our inability to just sit down and communicate and taking that into our own organizations and allowing that to be really important that, you know, when we, when we do kind of break that stuff down and allow ourselves to just, just connect with the people sitting next to you, like, you don't have to accept what they say, but but allowing yourself the ability to understand it and and to better appreciate that they are as human as you are 
you know, just creates a better opportunity for collective growth. Um, and I'm one that just doesn't believe that fighting ever answers that. Uh, so I think that, you know, again, just taking that opportunity to just pull your ego down for a minute, mm-hmm. um, even when theirs is unbelievably strong, potentially, it's going to be really helpful. So, yeah, I recommend it. Ego is the Enemy is a fantastic book. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, I kind of came... So that book, and then uh, there were a couple of others that I read that were also uh, fairly interesting as far as just the constant personal improvement. And yeah, you have to get your ego out of the way in order to recognize I could do better in these areas, especially the areas where you really need to grow. That's where I put my blinders up. And right. so, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's like, it's like, I don't even want to think about how bad I am at that or, you know, <laughs> right. or how much I struggle at that. And, you know, in some of these areas, like uh, today, I just hired a project manager to help me with po- podcast production, stuff like that, because I'm really bad at it. And to be perfectly honest, I want to work on the other stuff like making podcasts. So, you know, sometimes you just kind of suck it up and go, okay, I'm doing terrible at this. And then you hire it out. But in other areas, you know, like some of the things that are indicative of this, like communication and detail orientedness and things like that, that I really do need to improve on at the same time, you know, it's finding those areas and then working on them. And uh, I read um, a couple of books. One is Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Um, Another one is... um, the Miracle Morning. And they're all kind of generally about self-improvement. But the premise that comes through is just that successful people are constantly learning and constantly applying what they're learning so that they get better. And if you don't do that, then you're not going to improve. And so, and, and I think that's a, a truth for everybody, right? I mean, you can get comfortable and coast and you'll probably be okay. But if you want to excel, then you have to keep moving ahead. And that means getting past your ego and past all of these things and really having an honest look at where you're at. Absolutely. Yeah, there's another uh, book that I'm almost through, also Ryan Holiday, called The Obstacle is the Way. And I think Obstacle is the Way came out before Ego is the Enemy. Uh, also fantastic. It just speaks about, it just really uh, talks about embracing the challenge and struggle that you have in your life and see it as uh, look for the w- the areas in which that has created a benefit in your existence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that by having that struggle, you overcame by doing X, right? And to really right. acknowledge those things instead of just see it as a, you know, massive pain. And, you know, there's some great people in our community where it's very unfortunate, but I think fortunate for all involved. It's unfortunate that they had real struggle in their life. Um, and that they've had some real adversity, but it's fortunate for everybody in the world because now they're able to speak to it more, more clearly and they're able to really identify and help everybody else in the community grow as a byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this double-edged sword, but I find that at the end of the day, I'm really grateful – I don't want this to sound weird, but I'm grateful that they went through what they went through so they can help everybody become more enlightened around that and, it, you know, and grow from it. It's way cool. Yep. Well, in its way, <laughs> I don't know. But, no, I yeah. agree. I, I've also uh, kind of been in the position. Um, I guess I'll betray some of my political standpoints, for lack of a better word. But um, you know, I I don't get a hundred percent behind some of the women in tech, you know, issues and the way that people talk about it. But at the same time, you know, you see people, and yeah, they struggled, and then they come around and they do great things like Railsbridge and stuff like that. I'm like, I get a hundred percent behind that. Because that's great stuff. 
And so, yeah, it's unfortunate that people had to struggle, but in the end, you know, the the outcomes are amazing. You also see this with people who tend to, you know, create just terrific stuff. And, you know, it's never their first success. Well, almost never their first success. They struggle, they learn, they struggle, they learn, and then eventually they get there. Yeah, obstacle is a is a tough thing. Yeah, yep. it's, a, it's a tough thing, but it can be a beautiful thing if you look at, you know, the greatness that emerges out of it. Yep. Anyway, if people want to see what you're thinking about these days or working on, you know, maybe you're on Twitter or GitHub, they want to follow you or you have a blog where they can read your excellent thoughts. Where do they go? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I don't have a blog, but um, probably the best thing is you can find me on Twitter. So Adam Cuppy, you can find me on GitHub at a Cuppy. And I don't think anyone else in the world has my name. So you could just search Adam Cuppy in Google, I would imagine. You find a few things. You can find out about Zeal. And, uh, and if I eventually do have a blog, I'd imagine it'd be somewhere mm-hmm. along those lines. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. That's the last section of the show. Um, do you have some things you want to shout out about? Oh, well, uh, definitely, you know, conferences coming up. Uh, there's a great slew of stuff coming up. Obviously, the Ruby Dev Summit. Love to uh, hear from you there uh, and everybody that's there. Uh, we've got Rocky Mountain Ruby coming next week, the week after that, Southeast Ruby, and then not but, I don't know, a month or so after that, we've got RubyConf and, you know, the others that are coming up. So I'd, I'd say I'd give the biggest shout out to all the great conferences that are happening regionally, and it would be awesome to see people there. I'd love to say hi. Slap a high five. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and Ruby Dev Summit, by the way, is free. Um, if you want to just come watch the talks, if you want yeah, the recordings, um, I'm also going to throw in access to Ruby Rogues Parlay as part of the deal on an all access pass. And, uh, yeah, anyway, so you get the recordings, you get that, and you know, and I'm, I'm talking to a few other people to get some other, uh, goodies for people who sign up for Ruby Dev Summit with all access passes. Um, the chat room also has the, the speakers in it so you can reach out to them after the talks otherwise you're kind of limited to the the chat that's built into the software i use for the talks so um anyway looking forward to your talk in particular um and then i'm also going to shout out about a few other things i've talked about it on this show and on other shows briefly i've been doing the ketogenic diet um i'm diabetic so cutting my carbs to nearly nothing makes a whole lot of sense to me just you know, from some of the scientific standpoint, freaked my doctor out, but that's fine. Um, but anyway, I've lost 20 pounds and my diabetes numbers are under control now. Um, but yeah, I went over to Eric Berry's house. Uh, Eric's on Ruby Rogues as a regular panelist. And uh, he had this awesome cheesecake that was low carb. And so uh, I'll pick that. I'll put the recipe in the show notes. And then um, also related to that, um, I heard an interview with Tom Naughton, who's the guy that made Fathead. Um, if you watch Supersize Me, this was his answer to Supersize Me, you know, and basically picked apart the movie and, um, you know, some of the premises that uh, Morgan Spurlock put in there. Um, and that was also really interesting. It turns out Tom Naughton is a software developer. And so, you know, that, that analytic mind went to work on <laughs> Supersize Me. But it was it was very, very educational most of the stuff I had heard before because I've been studying, you know, the science behind the ketogenic diet. Um, and he doesn't advocate ketogenic. He actually advocates paleo or primal um, at the end of the director's cut. But uh, anyway, it was just kind of a fun and interesting movie. They did it on a shoestring. So, you know, the animations are kind of 
I wouldn't say they're low quality because they're well done, but you know, they're not highly produced. So anyway, really enjoyed that as well. Uh, overall, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm really feeling good. I felt I'm feeling better than I have in a while. And you know, my health is under control. And so if you're diabetic or if you're just overweight and you're feeling like, you know what, I want to give something a try, try the keto diet. There's a book out there called Keto Clarity that you can check out uh, by Jimmy Moore, and it will walk you through uh, how to do it. So anyway, I would endorse that as well. Uh, I follow a lot of keto principles, too. So it's great. Nice. Yeah, a lot of energy. Yeah. Go go eat me some fat. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, if you've if you've been in the programming community for a while and you're familiar with .NET Rocks, uh, Carl Franklin from .NET Rocks actually has a keto podcast called Two Keto Dudes. And so I'll, I'll put that out there as well. Um, you can go check that out. Um, I wind up seeing Carl a couple times a year at Microsoft events because Microsoft likes to fly myself and some of my co-hosts from JavaScript Jabber out to their conferences. So um, anyway, and he's lost a bunch of weight. He looks pretty darn good. Um, so yeah, so he's a friend, but he's also, and, and they go deep into the science cause they're software guys too. And they're just, they're like, you know what? We're not afraid of some technical details, so we're going to go after it. So anyway, great stuff. Um, I guess I should probably wrap this up. So, uh, yeah, we'll wrap this one and we will be back next week with another story. Awesome. Thank you so much, Charles. It's been yeah. great. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.